Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. We are continuing on our series through the book of Acts. We just started up a a couple of weeks ago. Then we had a break for Easter. Um, And Dan, if you want to click forward a couple of slides, um, we'll pull up maybe two more. There we go. Our series title, The Ends of the Earth. And it's our our journey through Acts. We're going to be going through this for for a little while. And um, the first week, Mick Arson introduced us to this book in the whole context of Scripture. He kicked off our study with the first 11 verses, talking about the author who is Luke. Luke's aim is to give proofs that Jesus, whose Jewish name is Yeshua, is the anointed Savior, referred to in Greek as the Christ, and in Hebrew as the Messiah. Now, Jesus gave many proofs of his resurrection, sorry, Luke gave many proofs of Jesus' resurrection and the commission that he gave to the disciples and by extension us, everyone who believes to be his witnesses. Now, Mick summed it up by saying, Acts is all about the church. It is a story that records the earliest days of the church on earth. And one thing that really struck me about Mick's sermon is he said, God wants us as Calvary Chapel Newcastle to be studying this book together as a church because I believe that God is doing something special with this little group of people right here. I believe that God is equipping us to go out and do exactly what the church was meant to do. That is to share the good news of who Jesus is, how much he loves the people in this very city and beyond. But there are some things that we need to know along the way, and this book will help us to learn these things. So, what are some of the things that we need to learn along the way to loving God by loving each other and loving our families, then this city and all of God's, of God's creation? Well, Dan Verlon touched on this last week in Acts, or two weeks ago, sorry, in Acts 1, verses 12 to 26 by speaking about, firstly, the necessity of prayer in the life of the believer. He said the men and the women of the early church first obeyed Christ, and then they prayed as though they were one. See, prayer not only unifies us as believers, it readies us and prepares us for serving God. Secondly, he spoke on the importance of unity. Whether for two minutes, two minutes after Christ's ascension or 2,000 plus years later, It is Christ who unites every single believer in him across all time, across all cultures, across all language groups. He is the one who unites us. And thirdly, Dan spoke about letting God, or Yahweh, lead the process as we are obedient to what God has called us to be by having prayer as our first response, by reading and studying God's word in order to apply it to our lives, by being prudent with his word and the giftings that he's given us, by examining the motives of our hearts and our intentions, these are the ways that we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and we allow God to guide the process. So what is the process that he's leading us toward? What is his plan? I would say that it is nothing less than reversing the curse of sin and death to the ends of the earth, to restore God's original intent for creation to be a place of blessing and of flourishing by partnering with a people created in His image to bring about blessing and flourishing through a relationship with Him and also in obedience to Him. Now, the next phase of His plan to bring about this restoration commences with the birth of the church. So I've titled this sermon, Reversing the Curse Through the Birth of the Church. Now, with that backdrop in mind, we'll continue into Acts 2, we'll go through verses 1 to 13, and we'll look at this in four sections. Firstly, we'll look in verse 1 at God's perfect timing. Secondly, in verses 2 to 4, we'll look at God's presence and His power. Thirdly, in verses 5 through 11, 
We'll go through God's partnership with his people. And then in verses 12 and 13, the people respond. So in verse 1, God's perfect timing. Acts 2.1 says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. So a few things here. Firstly, Pentecost. What is that about? It's not an English word. We've kind of smuggled it in from the Greek. Now, in the Greek, it means 50, and it refers to the Jewish celebration of the Festival of Weeks. Now, this festival, it was an annual festival similar to what we have in Easter or Christmas that Christians celebrate, or Ramadan to Muslims, or Anzac Day to Aussies. It was a national holiday that was meant to bring remembrance and celebration. What is different about the Festival of Weeks to a lot of other festivals that God had given the Jews is that it is one of three festivals where the Jews were commanded to celebrate in a very specific location, Jerusalem. It was what we call a pilgrimage festival, meaning that, they, that all of the able-bodied men needed to travel from wherever they were to join together in Jerusalem for this festival. Now the other two pilgrimage festivals are Passover, and the Festival of Tabernacles, or Tents. And we'll speak about those in a little bit. The festival, festival of Weeks, or Pentecost, occurred 50 days after the Passover, hence, in the Greek, Pentecost 50. It is also called throughout Scripture the Day of the First Fruits, and that's in Numbers 28, 26. And in Exodus 23, 16, it's called the Feast of the Harvest. In the Jewish New Testament commentary, David Stern says this. He says, on the festival of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented to Adonai, or Yahweh, in the temple. The offering consisted of two loaves of baked bread. Um, they were baked with leavened flour. This was celebrating God's providence at the start of the wheat season. The festival of weeks later became understood as commemorating the giving of the law, or the Torah, to Moses at Mount Sinai, and that's recorded for us in Exodus 19 and 20. Now, each pilgrim festival was associated with a major historical event in the forming of the Jewish people, and also a major, had a major religious theme. Passover celebrated the exodus of Egypt it has creation as its theme, the creation of the Jewish people. The theme of the Festival of Weeks is revelation, and the theme of the Festival of Tents is associated with the 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, which culminated in entering the Promised Land, and that theme is redemption. So these three themes, creation, revelation, and redemption, reappear in many other aspects of Jewish life such as the three meals of the Sabbath. In Romans 11, Paul, who's a Pharisee that was well-versed in the law and the teachings of all the rabbis, um, which were the commentaries of the day, he says this in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments! How unforgettable his ways! And in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. David Stern continues by saying the three chief areas in which God manifests his nature and his power are alluded to here in this verse. Creation being from him, revelation being through him, redemption being to him. Orthodox Judaism has observed that these same themes go through the entire Bible, and they find their expression in, a, in the traditional ways of celebrating the Sabbath and every other Jewish holiday. So let me ask, I've said a lot about holidays. What's the purpose of a holiday? Why do we set apart certain years every day, or sorry, certain days every year to break from our normal routine to stop working, to get away, maybe refresh for a while. And what holiday carries the most meaning and significance for you personally? 
Perhaps it's not a holiday like Christmas or Anzac Day. Perhaps it's Mother's Day or Father's Day. Could be a significant date like a birthday or an anniversary or even the anniversary of loss. The day that, a day to remember the life of a loved one who is no longer with us and we long to see again. See, these days, these holidays, break up the routine of everyday life and they force us to think outside of ourselves to something bigger, something else that we are part of. They may have a personal, a societal, or even a theological significance. Oftentimes, they have all three. But to Yahweh, the days of feasting that he commanded and gave to the Israelites held a sacred, um, he gave to the Israelites to hold sacred, all point back to his plan to reverse the curse of sin and death and bring about flourishing to the ends of the earth. Each feast pointed, and pointed to and displayed God's power and presence at the time while also pointing to a future fulfillment. At Passover, we remember the creation of a group of people deliver, by delivering them out of slavery and death into life. This pointed to the sacrifice on Passover of Christ, our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians 5, verses seven and eight, who was sacrificed once for all so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. At the Festival of Weeks, we remember the revelation of God in giving the law at Sinai, a revelation which continues to, us through, to this day through scripture, and we also witness the birth of a covenantal people. This points to Acts 2, where we see the birth of the new covenantal people, the church, identified by the, re the revelation of the Holy Spirit, which begins to be fulfilled on this event and continues being fulfilled to this day through the lives of, the belie of believers as we walk with him. Now that new covenantal promise is no longer to a singular nation as the old covenant was. This new covenantal promise is available to all nations, all individuals by the basis of faith. Then as we look at the festival of tents or tabernacles, we remember how God is faithful to fulfill his promises of redemption. As believers, we are redeemed already but scripture says a time is coming where God will redeem all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Clearly this has not yet happened. To this, we call it kind of a, it's an already but a not yet kind of worldview or way, way of looking at the world. Much of what Yahweh has promised has come to pass, but not yet completely we're still awaiting the full redemption. It is not yet completely experienced. In God's perfect plan, he doesn't simply send us to the ends of the earth. He actually leads by example and so much more. In Christ, he put on flesh to dwell among us. That is the revelation becoming a reality in relationship. He became our sin offering as a substitute bearing the consequence of our sin taking the curse of sin and death upon himself and raised us up to new life, abundant life for eternity and also to be experienced here on earth in Christ. This is redemption for us. And then he calls us to partnership to bring that message of redemption and reconciliation to the ends of the earth. So what's our takeaway here? What's the application of all these feasts? Yahweh, in his wisdom, embedded feasts or celebration events like Passover, the Festival of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles, and others, where we would intentionally retell the stories of his glory in history and also in our own lives. So what can we learn from this? I'd ask the question, are there certain events in your own life where you can so clearly see that God was at work? Are those types of days, something that you can make almost an annual, a personal annual day of remembrance that you can also pass on to your family, 
to remember his faithfulness, not just in scripture to a people far off in a distant time, but his faithfulness to you personally. Perhaps it could be your testimony. The day that the light bulb finally sparked for you or the penny dropped. Perhaps it was a day that it's a key answer to something that you'd been longingly praying for and he gave you that answer. And maybe it was even better than you could have asked or imagined. Perhaps it was a miraculous intervention. Any of these things that we can weave into remembrance throughout the year that help us to fix our eyes on Yahweh and take them off of ourselves, that's what he desires from all of these feasts. See, God has a perfect track record of faithfulness and he's not about to ruin it on you or I. But if we forget those times of his intervention, his leading in our lives, it's really easy to go astray or to get bogged down by our circumstances. And this leads to the next part of the verse, which is so important. In Acts 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. In one place, to me, brings two questions to mind. First, where were they? And what were they doing? So where were they when the Spirit came at Pentecost? There are a few possibilities. Perhaps they were in an upper room, the same upper room where they had the Last Supper, as recorded in Mark 14 or Luke 22. They could possibly have been in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, because we see in Acts 12, 12, that that's where the apostles gathered often to pray. Perhaps they were even at or around the temple courtyard, which in other passages is referred to the house of the Lord. Now, honestly, we can't know for certain because God didn't tell us. And I think that's a good thing. In his wisdom, God gives us the details in scripture that we need in order to know him, to believe him and walk with him on his message of reconciliation. He doesn't give us more, and he certainly doesn't give us any less. For better or worse, Jerusalem and many other biblical sites have become places of spiritual pilgrimage. In some ways, that can actually lead to an idolatrous exercise, even though it is the Holy Land. As believers, that might, sorry, Jerusalem might be the Holy Land, but as believers, we are his holy people. And just as Adam and Eve were meant to extend the blessing and the flourishing of the Garden of Eden, we are meant to extend Yahweh's blessing and flourishing wherever he has placed us. We are meant to reverse the curse with righteousness, truth, and love. Now, a pilgrimage may give renewed vitality or drive for some for a certain time. But in a biblical sense, the reason that we look back is as Paul says in Philippians 3.2, so that we can say with him, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. So let me ask this of myself, and I'll encourage you to ask it of yourself. What keeps me anchored in former things rather than pressing on toward what Christ desires for me now? and is working toward in me and through me for the future. Think on this. Obviously, don't shout it out, but what comes first to mind? Myself. Is it uh, myself? Is it perhaps a shameful memory, a habit, a harmful mentality or thinking pattern, a sin that you have if you are in Christ been forgiven of? Maybe you something that a person has said of you, or perhaps something you say of yourself. And now ask this, how will life look when we fully give those things over to the Lord? We create a habit of leaving those things of which we are forgiven in the past, conscious replacing it with, godly, with a godly and biblical fixation on Christ. How will our relationships change when we move into this mentality? Our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues. 
How will our re reputation at work or within the community change? When we are focused on Christ, when we're indwelled and also empowered by His Spirit, where the Spirit shows up is not the question. It is in whom and through whom does He show up for His purpose, which is glorifying Christ and reversing the curse of sin to promote true blessing and flourishing. And that is in us and through us, wherever He has placed us, because he is on a mission to bring redemption to the ends of the earth, and he's invited us and empowered us to join him as his partners. Which brings me to my other question about what the disciples were doing. What were they doing when they were gathered together? We know from Acts 1 verse 14 that they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. When we gather, not just on Sunday, but any time we gather together with other believers, what do we devote our time to? Hebrews 10, 24 exhorts us to spur one another on to love and good works. Now, my, a question I have of myself of, of this is, can I do this effectively and relevantly without knowing what's going on in my brothers and sisters' lives? And I would say no. When we know each other deeply and we bring each other's needs in prayer before the Father, He draws us near to Himself and to each other. He brings about His good, pleasing, and perfect will, and we can see how He works together all things for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose, as we wrote, read in Romans 8, 28. So how are we going with being devoted to and united in prayer for God's purposes to come about as a fellowship? Now I'll say this, I, I really believe that at this body, we really do an amazingly intentional job of building genuine relationships and praying for one another. There are a number of things that just as a, as a Bible study group that we have prayed for and seen God do amazing things just for His glory. And the number of times that can be a couple of weeks after, after a prayer request has been shared that I will be asked about something that I've asked for prayer for or I will overhear someone asking, how are you going? How is it in this situation? And it is such an encouragement to be part of a, a fellowship and a body of believers who really are intentionally looking for ways that we can pray together pray for one another and are intentionally invested in each other's lives. It is a joy to be part of that and it's a testimony of Christ to the outsiders because he says that we will be known as his followers by our love for one another. But I will also say this has to be intentionally maintained and increased just as with any relationship. Is it something for for you as it is for me to devote time in your own life to. So I'll, I'll just say from the stand, I would appreciate your prayer that I would learn from this and that I would grow in this. Let's continue. Acts 2, verses 2 to 4, God's presence and His power. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. At the beginning of the summer, Esther and I were down at Meriwether Beach um, and with the twins and pretty much most of Newcastle because the weather was so beautiful. And as we're enjoying the warmth of the sun and as much relaxation as you can do while watching twin toddlers, all of a sudden, as if out of nowhere, we heard the air-shattering sound of an F-35 as it flew by. And together with pretty much everyone else on the beach, we all turned our attention to this sound that just broke all concentration. It was, it was, it was not unmistakable, it was unmissable. It's something that you could not ignore. As the believers were gathered together, 
praying, Yahweh makes his presence known in a way that could be perceived by the senses. And these senses that he gave us to perceive the material world, he revealed himself to them in a way that they could not miss. First, it was with the sound of a rushing wind. And after that, the sound, after that sound, divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested upon them. And everyone in the house, everyone was empowered or filled to proclaim the glory of God. John Corson says this, the hearing comes first and then the seeing because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. The word always precedes the work of the Lord. You receive by faith before you, are, before you begin to see the work in and through your life. Now, a lot of people may say, if I can see it, I will believe it. But the kingdom, the way of the kingdom of heaven is believe it and you will see it. So let me ask, do you tend to be, or do you tend toward hearing or toward seeing? What's your default? In the polls of Christian belief, we have those who tend toward hearing, some saying uh, that scripture is all that we need, and yeah, the Holy Spirit indwells us and, and guides us, but aside from that, our experiences are really untrustworthy, so they shouldn't be factored into the, to the, uh, the experiences are untrustworthy, so they shouldn't be factored into living out the Christian life. This view sacrifices the experience of the Holy Spirit on the altar of Scripture. On the other pole, we have some who seek so completely at the experience of the Spirit that their study of the Scripture in order to apply it to their lives is sacrificed. Let me uh, repeat that. On the other pole, we have some who seek so completely the experience of the Spirit that their study of the Scripture um, is sacrificed. They view um, this view, sorry, sacrifices Scripture on the altar of experience. Now, I've come to hold that both of the extremes are missing the mark. We need the Scriptures. We need the Spirit. To sacrifice one is to undermine the other and render both ineffective in our lives. We need, to be, we need the same studious nature of the Bereans who listened to what Paul had to say and tested it according to Scripture. And we need to live out the gifts that the Spirit of God has given us for the, the building up of the body of Christ into all maturity so that our lives can reveal God's character, His holiness, and His kindness to those around us. In Acts 2, verses 3 and 4, we read that divided tongues appeared to them, rested on each one of them, and they were filled, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. As the believers are in prayer, the Holy Spirit appears to them, rests on them, and fills and empowers them to speak as the Spirit gave utterance. Friends, this is a unique starting point to how the Holy Spirit works through those who he now indwells. In fact, after Acts 2.4, we don't see the wind and the fire appear again. But it's not the only time that we will see the Holy Spirit appear to, rest on, fill and empower the believer. See, the same Holy Spirit who presented himself on Pentecost longs to present himself to and through the life of each and every believer, each and every day. This is God's partnership with his people, which brings us to our third point. We'll, um, we'll go through verses five through 11, and I'll just pull out a few key points as we go through. In verse five, it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. There are two things that stand out to me here. First, these Jews were devout. In the context of Acts, 
It is shortly after the false trial, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Messiah. It can be easy for us to see that group of people, that group of Jews, as God's failed attempt to create for himself one people who would be a kingdom of priests, proclaimers of his glorious grace, and partakers and partners in bringing blessing and flourishing to the earth. But the story, the history of Israel is full of failures. So is my life, so is yours. And the fact that Yahweh longs to partner with us is a beautiful picture of his grace. The fact that he desires a relationship with each individual is a testimony to his loving kindness and his long suffering and his ability to draw a straight line with us crooked sticks and then weave all of those lines together into a picture of completion and wholeness and healing and restoration is nothing short of miraculous. Here we see God-fearing, devout Jews who, like King David, were diligently, authentically, and imperfectly seeking after God's heart. May we be the same. Secondly, we see that they are from every nation under heaven. So these Jews had been scattered across the globe over the generations. For some, they may have been scattered by um, by force when the Assyrians uprooted them in the 7th century BC, about 2,700 years ago. Others may have been taken out during the Babylonian captivity of 586 BC, about 2,400 years ago or so. All of the scatterings of the Jewish people were a result of their rebellious hearts toward God. And even still, he always offered restoration, blessing, and the invitation to flourishing wherever they were at. We see this beautifully in Jeremiah 29, where God encourages the Babylonian exiles to plug into daily life, to build houses, to get married, to have children, to grow crops and eat them. And he says, for the, uh, for the flourishing of your flourishing will also depend on the flourishing of this city. We see another beautiful picture of it in Joel 2, which I'd love to go into, but very, very short summary is in the beginning of Joel 2, we read of a land that looks like Eden, a mighty army that comes in and wipes everything out and is said, before this army is as of Eden, after this army is a desert wasteland. And then in verse, in, uh, verse 13, God says, when we, when we repent, when we turn to him, that he will hold this off and instead of leaving waste behind him, leave blessing. Very beautiful passage. Seems really brutal, but I would definitely encourage you all to read it. Um, that's Joel chapter two. See, throughout history, when God allowed difficulty in the lives of his people or even orchestrated difficult circumstances, particularly for the nation of Israel, he always did it from a desire that they would see the emptiness of life without him in order to turn back to the fullness and abundance of life with him. So let me ask you, where are you at? Do you feel alone, exiled, maybe misunderstood or unseen? He is with you. The creator of the universe who knit you and I together in our mother's wombs took on flesh confined himself to the womb of a virgin named Mary. Do you feel insufficient or powerless or vulnerable? He is with you. The Almighty One who holds the stars in his hands was born to the earth, had to learn to roll over, to curl his thumbs when he counters to the number four. Do you feel betrayed or rejected? He is with you. He knew Judas would betray him for 30 mere pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And he said to him, what you must do, do quickly. He then hung on a cross, naked, beaten, bleeding, suffocating, and cried out, Father, forgive them 
for they don't know what they're doing. And he also cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we wouldn't have to cry that. Do you feel victorious? He is with you. On that cross, he cried out, it is finished, signaling the the beginning of the end of the reign of sin and death. And do you feel joyful? He is with you. He burst from that empty tomb to newness of life as the firstborn among many brethren and offers us life abundant in him. Wherever we are in life, full of joy or desperate for hope, he has been there and he desires to be there with us today. More importantly, he desires that we be in relationship with him and bring that relationship to others. He desires your blessing and your flourishing. That is what he created you and me for. And this is also how we can pray for and encourage one another. Lord, may we be such a people. Continuing in verses six through 11, we read, at the sound of this, the multitudes came together, and I'll just pull out a few bolded places up there. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing these Galileans speak in their own language. In verse eight, they said to themselves, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then near the end of the paragraph, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. We'll start with the end, that last phrase, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See, the purpose of God's work in us and through us is to proclaim his glory and his desire that every person on earth experience that life of blessing and flourishing that he originally created us for. Whether the expression of a spiritual gift is prophecy or hospitality, teaching or generosity, all of the gifts of the Spirit are meant to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of these so as to exalt and glorify God in our lives. Now, the sound of this event, all of these Galileans speaking totally different languages, much like that F-35 I mentioned a bit ago, drew a multitude together. Again, people from all over the known world and they were there to hear God's glory proclaimed in their own languages. Here, I'll refer back to David Stern for a summary. He says, the miraculous event accomplished through the Holy Spirit amounts to a reverse of Babel that we read in Genesis 11, one through nine. Then, at that point, God confounded the speech of the people who were misusing their unity for sinful purposes. After all, the English word babble comes direct from the Hebrew here. Here in Acts 2, God enables people whose different languages separated them to understand each other, praising God, which is the proper use of unity. Everyone heard them speaking in his own language in verse six. And then we are given a representative list of the entire Roman Empire in verses nine through 11. In summary, here in Acts 2, Yahweh is reversing the curse of sin and death to bring life, blessing, and flourishing to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, by partnering with his spirit-indwelled, spirit-led people. So let me ask, how do you sense the spirit leading and desiring to partner with you in your life today? Is there maybe an individual or perhaps a group of people that he's, that he's putting on your heart? I mean, try not to think of them right now. I mean, this is a sermon after all, so seriously, just try to forget about it later. Just kidding. I hope you can't forget about them. That's a whole point. It's like, don't think about an elephant. 
Don't think about those people, really. Don't, don't be praying for them throughout this week. No, don't be asking the Lord for opportunities to reach out and for wisdom and, and insight as to how you're gonna reach out to them. Yeah, definitely, don't do that. And just, just see how he will bless those opportunities, how he will bring them about, and how he will lead you to be looking and actively looking for those opportunities. So now we've seen God's perfect timing in verse one. We've looked at his presence and his power in verses two to four and his partnership with his people in verses five through 11. Now we come to the response. Verses 12 to 13, all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking. They said, "Ah, they're filled with new wine. So there are two groups of people here. The all who were amazed and perplexed saying, what does this mean? And the others who mocked saying, they're just drunk. See, whenever God works, there will be detractors. It's been this way ever since the fall of Lucifer, and again in Satan seeding doubt into Eve's mind about God's motives. And John, sorry, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, exhort us to a healthy level of faithful skepticism. Trust, but verify. Trust that God is speaking, but verify the message spoken confesses, confesses Yeshua the anointed one who has come in the flesh. Any such message is from God. We are told to to test those spirits according to what we know from scripture. Anything contrary is not from the Lord. This is one of the ways that we have to filter through the work of the spirit in our own lives and also in in the work of other lives, other people's lives. Be moved by the Spirit, but don't be so caught up in the moment or emotion that you don't verify. And if I learn how to catch that healthy balance, I'll let you know how I've done it, but I haven't. It's, a, it's gonna be a lifelong thing, I, I believe. The all who were amazed and perplexed were probably referring back to those devout Jews from all over the known world that we read about who perceived that God was moving in some amazing way. The others who mocked and said, they're just drunk. These didn't recognize what the believers were. They didn't recognize that the believers were really filled with the Spirit, and not just what they were filled by, but whom they were filled by. Instead, they thought the believers were drunk. Now this word that's translated filled with sweet wine that's used in, in this verse in Acts 2 is, is used in a similar way by Paul in Ephesians 5.18. See, after outlining what is true of the believer in Ephesians 1 through 3, how God has given us a position of being right with him in Christ and exhorts us to sit in that position in Christ, Paul gives practical application of how that position in Christ, now being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, should guide and direct the way in which we walk with him on earth. That's chapters four through five of Ephesians. And how it should also guide our stand against the spiritual powers of darkness and evil, which are opposed to God's plan to reverse the curse. We stand by putting on the full armor of God. Now in Ephesians five, verses 15 to 21, We read, therefore pay careful attention to how you conduct your life. Live wisely, not unwisely. Use your time well, for these days are evil, so don't be foolish, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, because it makes you lose control. Instead, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, too much liquid spirit makes us lose control. It inhibits our physical senses to the point of us not only being dull, but even more, to passing out. And under its influence, we may do things which are detrimental to relationships, to our witness, or even to life itself. On the contrary, when we keep being filled with the Spirit who directs praise to Christ as directed by the Father, we are spurred to love and good works, as as said in Hebrews 10.24, We promote God's original intent for blessing and flourishing. 
So rather than Paul's encouragement here is that rather than striving after the dullness and the death of the liquid spirit, that we are to pursue the life and the flourishing of the living spirit who indwells us at all times from the moment we believe in Christ and delights to fill us to overflowing and come upon us and work through us to the renewal of all things. Paul gives some practical tips on how we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. Sing to the Lord. Make music in your heart to Him. Always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Sing to each other from the heart. Quote scripture together. It's good. Singing spiritual truths resonates deeply with us. A melody and a rhythm are powerful mnemonic devices. If I were to ask you to take a, a favorite childhood song and recall it to mind, how long would it take? Not very long, especially if you hear the first few words or you hear the first few notes. Instantly, it's called back to mind. That's how God wants us to be exhorting and encouraging each other in the Spirit, is using all the senses that He has given us to, be, to bring reminders and exhortations unto loving good works. I don't know who wrote this, and apparently neither does Google, um, but it is, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care about its laws. See, music and lyrics can stir us and, and, and touch us on a, an emotional level, on a deep level, that mere information or mere words cannot to the same degree. There's something about music that's much more than just a mnemonic device or a great way to remember things. Something about music resonates to the core of our being. It moves us and influences us. And God's exhortation through Paul is that we use that gift of music and we use all the gifts that he has given us as individuals to together be filled with the Holy Spirit by the power and the glory of God for the power and the glory of God. Warren Wearsby writes, God's people experienced repeated fillings of the Spirit as they faced new opportunities and obstacles throughout the book of Acts. Ordinary people were able to do extraordinary things because the Spirit of God was at work in their lives. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It is an absolute necessity. In his introduction to the series, Mick gave a really great summary of the two key ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He said, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that we all possess. The baptism or the filling of God's Spirit is God's prerogative. For man, I reckon it'd be a good thing for us to desire. As believers indwelled by the Spirit, we should pursue His active, guiding, and empowering presence in our lives, seeking to be filled by Him day by evil day, so that we can bring life and flourishing, and we can reverse the curse to the ends of the earth. He can reverse the curse to the ends of the earth through us. So wrapping this all up, in Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, we see, firstly, God's perfect timing. It's not just in history, but in our own lives. He instituted special feasts as reminder events that draw us back to the stories of his faithfulness, of his presence and his power in creation, revelation, and redemption. We are encouraged to celebrate those feasts together and recall to, to our memory our own memorial days as we live our lives and as we walk with faith. We then see, in verses 2 to 4, God's power and His presence. It is tangibly, experientially recognized, first with the wind and then with the fire. And that same Holy Spirit who presented Himself at Pentecost longs to present Himself to us and through the lives of each of us who believe each and every day. He appears to, He comes upon, He fills and empowers the believers for His work of reversing the curse to the ends of the earth. And that is his partnership with his people. 
His people like you and I, we are far from perfect, but He is the perfect one. And He is committed to not only rescuing us from sin and death, but partnering with us to bring life abundant, blessing and flourishing to our families, to our community, to our culture and across, across the globe. And He accomplishes this through us when we choose to continually respond to Him and pursue Him. As believers indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we should pursue His active, guiding, empowering presence in our lives, seeking to be filled by Him day by evil day so that He can bring life and flourishing and reverse the curse of death to the ends of the earth through us. So perhaps through this week, we can evaluate our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our interactions. In our relationships, in different circumstances, different daily situations, by asking ourselves this question, in this situation, how am I reversing the curse? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Oh, that is a beautiful sound, the joy of a, of a child's laughter. You are so good. And just what a reminder that is of the relationship you long to have with us, that joy you long to bring to our lives and also through our lives. I thank you so much for your son. I thank you so much for your scripture. I thank you so much for this body of believers and ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that you would draw us near to you, that not only would you change our lives, that, but that through our lives, you would change the lives of those around us, and that you would bring about a true blessing and a true flourishing according to your will. We ask this for your holy, amazing, and honorable name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.